y'all find your way to your seat. We're about to just soak it up with a song. Y'all can sit there and follow along with us on the screen. What a joy to
First of all, to our 50-plus crowd, I'm not going to call you seniors this week, but for the 50-out crowd today, there is a fellowship coming up on Friday, December 3rd. That's this coming Friday. It's the home of Greg and Cecilia Till. Greg, where are you in the room? So Greg and Cecilia, back here. Y'all, y'all wave again. So if you're not sure where to go, come see. They live in Wetumpka, 225 Cedar Ridge Drive. So if you're not sure where it is, 225 Cedar Ridge Drive up in Wetumpka. 50 up. Hope you'll come join them at their house. Please bring a plate or dish of your favorite heavy hors d'oeuvres enough to share with others, and then desserts will be provided. It'll be a great chance for the older, the adults of Gateway, 50 up, to join together for a fellowship this Friday. December 8th, we have a, ch- a church-wide service project and movie night. This is a highlight of the year for us. We're doing two service projects this year as we gather together on Wednesday night at 6 o'clock. The first one is locally. We're going to make goodie baskets to take to some fire stations in town just to bless some of the first responders. So we'll be emailing you more details about that, but we're going to bring desserts together and make these big baskets to take to them. But then we're also partnering with an orphanage in Kenya, and we're going to make Christmas cards for the kids in Kenya. So we'll get to think about local and global as we come together. And then after we get that done, we'll have popcorn and hot chocolate, and we're going to watch a Charlie Brown Christmas on the big, massive screen and the gym. So this is for the whole family. Hope you'll all come and be part of that. Then December 13th, ladies, there is a ladies' Christmas painting night in the gym. So we an opportunity to paint Christmas paintings together, to enjoy desserts together. There's no cost to it, but we need you to register so we know how much supplies to have. Mandy Moody's going to be um, teaching you how to paint. So if you've never done it before, you can come. If you're an expert painter, you can come. This will be a fun opportunity, ladies, to gather together and celebrate Christmas together. And then I've already had one of the kids of Gateway ask me this morning, when are we going to do the gingerbread houses? And that's coming December 15th. If kids, if on your way out today, if you want to take a peek in the office, there's 50 gingerbread houses sitting there waiting for us, not to grab today, but to do on December 15th. But we'll come together. This is not just for kids. Adults, you can come. College students, singles, you can get a group of friends together. And we'll sit around the tables and we'll decorate pre-built gingerbread houses so you don't have to worry about trying to get them to hold together and have your sanctification challenge, right? Trying to build a gingerbread house. They're already built. We get to decorate them together while we eat cookies and have popcorn and hot chocolate and do all that fun together. And then finally, December 24th, Christmas Eve, we're doing Carol's Communion and Candlelight, 5 p.m. on that Friday night here. Just about a 45-minute service for all of us together. No child care, kids welcome as well. And we're going to just celebrate the birth of Christ and take communion together on Christmas Eve. And so we're excited about all this. Mark your calendars on the blog. Go to gatewaybaptist.com. You should have had an email from us this week about that. If you haven't, let us know and we'll get you on the email list with that. 
This morning we get a special introduction. You guys pray regularly for new life in Christ. That's the Hispanic church that meets here on the campus after we're done. You see a lot of our friends coming in. And as you've heard, as we prayed for months, they've been looking for a pastor. They have a new pastor, Brother Samuel Rodriguez, who came in from, from uh, down in South Florida. So come on up here, you and your family, come on up. Let me, let me grab a mic here. We want you guys to get to see who you've prayed for, and get to, I want you to, he's going to give you a word of introduction as well. But this is Pastor Samuel Rodriguez, moved up from Miami, Florida, if I remember correctly. He's a new pastor, a new life in Christ, and so we wanted him to say a word of greeting to you. Gracias. Buenos dias. Good morning. <laughs> My English is no good. Uh, my name is Samuel Rodriguez. My beautiful wife, wife, Heidi, and my beautiful daughter, Heidi. <laughs> Only English. <laughs> Necesito la traducción de la hermana y por tanto la presento, la hermana Gabi. I would need the translation of my sister, Gabi. Um, nosotros somos el resultado de las misiones norteamericanas. We are a result of North American missions. Um, Norteamericanos fueron a Cuba y predicaron el evangelio y nosotros somos el resultado de esto. North Americans went to Cuba and preached uh, the gospel and now we are here. Por lo que yo puedo decir que yo soy hijo de ustedes. For which I can say that now I uh, son of you all. Amen. Uh, vivimos acá en Estados Unidos desde el 2015. We've been living in the U.S. since 2015. Um, fuimos pastores en Cuba desde el 96 hasta el 2014. We were pastors in Cuba from 1996 to 2014. Um, en seis años estuvimos en Miami, donde no se habla inglés. We were six years in Florida where no are U.S. citizens, me and my wife. And we don't speak English. My daughter does. <laughs> es un reto para nosotros aprender inglés con ustedes. It is a challenge for us to learn English with you as well. Ha sido un placer poder venir a Montgomery a trabajar en la iglesia hispana. It has been a pleasure to work in Montgomery in the Hispanic Church. Y esperamos la oración de ustedes por nosotros para que la comunidad hispana en este lugar pueda conocer del Señor. And we ask for your prayers to help us um, to spread the gospel for the Hispanics to get to know God. Gracias por el trato que han tenido ustedes para con la iglesia. Thank you for your hospitality towards our church. Amen. Amen. Okay, I'm going to pray for you, okay? So I hope you guys are excited that they're here. As you see, our friends from New Life in Christ, several of them have joined us this morning. And so you see Eduardo back over there and Kike over here and some of our friends that you've known for a while. I hope you'll take time to get to know them. As you're leaving, they're coming in. Speak to them and get to know them. These are sweet friendships that, that we cherish. But I, I want to pray over you guys, and we're thankful God's brought you here. Let me pray for you all. Father, we are thankful for the long ministry of New Life in Christ here in Montgomery. We are thankful, Lord, that you have blessed this church. Lord, we are thankful that they've been partners with us, even here on this, on this Gateway campus. Thank you for the way they reach faithfully their own community. And Lord, we're grateful that in your providence, you brought Pastor Samuel and his family here to Montgomery. 
Lord, we thank you that the church has prayed and worked hard for months locating a pastor, and you've brought them together. So we pray your blessings on Pastor Swamwell here, that you will bless him and his family. Lord, I know it's challenging moving to a place to where Spanish is not the dominant language. So we pray you would help him be able to learn and communicate the language. Lord, I pray you bless him as he preaches your word week by week, that you'll just anoint his preaching ministry at the church, his discipleship of others, that you will just have your hand upon him and his family and use him mightily to make your name known right here in Montgomery and throughout the world. So we thank you for him and his family. Thank you for the church and ask your blessings upon them all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys. Welcome to you. Well, Advent is upon us. So Bill and Martha, if you want to come up here, we are excited to bring back the Advent wreath. As you know, Advent, we'll talk about in our sermon this morning. It is a season of thinking about the coming of Christ. And so today we come to the candle of hope, the theme of hope. And so Bill and Martha Gibbons are new members at Gateway from this year. And they're going to come read us a scripture as our call to worship and then light the Advent candle, after which we will sing together. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Blood 
What a foretaste of deliverance. How unwavering our hope. Christ in power resurrected as we will be when he comes. Lord, we're reminded from 1 John 3. Behold, beloved, we are God's children now and we will be. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. Father, we thank you this morning for the the season, the season of Advent. And reminded this time of year, Lord, the many opportunities that we have to proclaim the hope that we have in Christ. I pray that as a church that we would be salt and light during this season, Lord. I pray that you would open up opportunity opportunities for all of us to communicate the hope that's within us, Lord, that Christ lives within us, that we are his, and that, Lord, we have a hope that supersedes all that we see on this earth, that we long for the day when Christ will return and will establish his kingdom here on earth, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Father, thank you for that. Lord, this morning as we gather, we also want to pray. Pray for the many ministries and the opportunities that we have. We lift up to you this morning, Jeff and Jennifer Hand and the Fisher's Farm Ministry. We thank you for how you're using them and the ministry there. Lord, we pray for them that you would give them grace upon grace as they have projects going on and opportunities to minister. I pray for the men at Fisher's Farm, Lord, that you would continue to do that work in them, grow them, 
in the grace and knowledge of you. Father, we also want to lift up to you uh, Pastor Eddie Mitchell at Rivers Edge Church. Lord, we pray for the churches in this area, and uh, we long to see the churches grow in this area, that the name of Christ would be magnified. I pray for uh, Pastor Eddie. I pray, Lord, for him as he imparts the word this morning. And we also pray, Lord, just for grace as he leads and shepherds that congregation. We pray for unity for that church, Lord, that they would grow in unity and love of you. And that, Lord, many would come to know you as Lord and Savior through that ministry. Lord, we also want to pray for the global missions, the global missions of people around the world who are, who are working in the fields uh, that are wide unto harvest. Lord, we pray for Eva, who is in the Western Czech Republic. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to use her. And recently, she has learned a new evangelistic method. And, Lord, we pray that you would just give her that opportunity to share her faith with many friends and those around her. We pray, Lord, that the gospel in the Czech Republic would go forward. Lord, I just, we have friends there. I have personal friends who are ministering there in the Czech Republic. And I pray, Lord, that the, the good news uh, would be heard this Christmas season, Lord, that many opportunities would be open to sharing the faith and the love of Christ. Father, thank you for how you've given to this church. You have blessed us beyond measure. Thank you for uh, the many blessings we have materially. Those are all from you. And, Lord, as we give back, I pray that we would give with a heart of gratitude. As we've just celebrated the holiday of Thanksgiving, Lord, we have so much to be thankful for. And I pray, Lord, that in our thanks, it would overflow in our giving and our love toward one another. And, Lord, I pray that we would use the offerings that are given to this church to further your kingdom. Lord, we want to see, we want to be good stewards of the resources that we have been given. So give the elders and give the church, this body, wisdom as we use that to further your kingdom. Father, we also want to pray for Grady this morning as he comes to bring your word. Lord, as we sit under the word, we get to do this week in and week out. I pray that we would have hearts that would be attentive to your truth. We pray for Grady, Lord, that you anoint him with your spirit. And that as he communicates the word of God, that he would do so with power and clarity. Lord, looking forward this morning to hearing from you. And Lord, we just pray that that word would do its work in our hearts and our lives to transform us, that we might leave here a people who are transformed. So, Lord, we commit that to you, and we thank you for what you're going to do, and we give you the glory and the praise. In Christ's name, amen. So they are going. If you want to be finding John chapter 1 from the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, and your copy of God's Word are on your Bible app this morning. You know, we're going to pause our study of rooted, of being more grounded in the Word of God for the season of Advent. Now, what is Advent? I referenced it earlier when we lit the candle, but, but what are we talking about with Advent? Well, honestly, friends, we do not know when Advent first began. The first record of Advent in church history goes back to the late 300 ADs, and there's at least one record of it happening then. Somewhere then around the 5th or 6th century, it seems to have become more common in the life of some churches. So we're going to something way back in church history, but we don't know exactly when it started. So what exactly is Advent all about then? Well, the word Advent is a Latin word, 
It's a Latin word that means coming. It's actually a Latin word that translates a Greek word. You know, the New Testament is written in Greek, and it translates the Greek word parousia, which means coming, a word that we use in Scripture to talk about the first coming of Christ, what we celebrate at Christmas, and we talk about the second coming of Christ when Christ comes again. So Advent historically, when it's been used in the church, has been not just about Christmas, but it's been about remembering Christmas, but also looking towards the second coming of Christ. Now, in recent years in church history, over the last hundred years or so, the focus has kind of been moved away from the second coming of Christ to thinking about the birth of Christ and his first coming. And there's a reason to do Advent, to remember the birth of Christ. Because for so many of us who've grown up in church, and this has been our experience, this is a very familiar story. We've seen the nativities everywhere. We talk about Christmas and we sing the songs and we miss the wonder of the fact that God has come in human flesh. And so for us, Advent becomes a tool to help us rediscover the awe and wonder at what we're actually celebrating this Christmas season. But Advent also is helpful for us because it focuses us on our deepest longings, longings for hope and peace and love and joy, and it shows us how those longings are satisfied in Christ and in Christ alone. So it helps us pause and not just think about the Christmas story, but think about these longings for hope and peace and joy and love and how those are fulfilled in Christ. And so today we begin with the topic of hope. And so the question I want us to ask this morning is simply this. Are we experiencing hope because of Christ? Are you experiencing hope because of Christ? As we come into the frantic busyness of Christmas season, are you experiencing hope because of who Jesus is? As we think about that question, we realize how quickly we can lose hope in this life. We begin to realize that our lives are outside of our control. We begin to realize that we will face trials and sufferings as we walk through life. We see pains and hardships that we have to endure. It becomes all too easy to lose hope. And friends, the reality is many of you have faced hardships this year. As we as elders have prayed for you and come alongside you, many of you have dealt with many hardships this year from unexpected job changes to financial difficulties to serious sickness to the reality of COVID and your battles with COVID to broken relationships outside of your control, the loss of loved ones, much more. We can go on and on. You as a church family have dealt with many hard things this year. So the question is, where is your hope? In the midst of the hardships of life. Where is your hope in the midst of the hardships of life? We find our answer in the Gospel of John in John chapter 1 this morning. Now, as you know, there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four records of the life and ministry of Christ, each told from a different perspective. When you put them together, you get the one big story of who Jesus is. Now, when it comes to the Christmas story, three of the four Gospels record it for us. Mark is the one who skips it. Mark just goes straight to John the Baptist and then Jesus getting baptized. He doesn't waste any time. He's the fast-paced, let's just get through the story narrative. So Mark skips the Christmas story, but Matthew includes it. In Matthew, you get the genealogy of Jesus. In Matthew, you get the angel appearing to Joseph. You get the wise men coming. You get the family having to flee from Bethlehem to Egypt. If you go to Luke's gospel, you get the angel appearing to Mary. You get Caesar's decree where people had to be counted. So you have Mary and Joseph having to go to Bethlehem. There's, in Luke's gospel, you get the no room for them in the inn. You get the Jesus in the manger part of it. You get the shepherds in the field at night. So that's where we get that part of the Christmas story that we celebrate. But when we come to John, he approaches it totally different than Matthew or Luke does in talking about the birth of Christ. In fact, he starts long before Jesus came in human flesh. He goes all the way back to creation. So look back at John chapter 1, verse 1. This is not our text for the day, but I want you to see kind of how he's setting the stage for what's to come with his account of Christmas. John chapter 1, verse 1. He says, In the beginning was the Word. It's just a name for Jesus here. And the Word Jesus was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. 
So we have here at the beginning that all things were made through him, that Jesus has always existed. So from the very beginning, John lays the foundation that Jesus did not begin with the Christmas story. That Jesus, for all eternity, has always been the second person of the one true God. He has always been God. He is eternal. And then as John builds up, he gets to verse 14. That's where we're going to pick up this morning. And John only gives us one verse about the Christmas story. That's it. In his 21 chapters, there's only one verse about the Christmas story here. And he does not include what we typically associate. There's no talk of Bethlehem. There's no talk about the inn and the manger. There's no talk of shepherds. There's no talk of wise men. There's no talk of angels in the sky. He doesn't do any of that for us. But in his one verse he, in talking about the Christmas story, what he tells us is absolutely glorious. And I pray that it would fill my heart with hope and your heart with hope this morning. So we're going to read John chapter 1, verses 14 to 16. And as we're reading, look for how does this give us hope? Because the word hope is not here, friends. But the truth that is here is filled with hope. So let's look at John chapter 1, verses 14 to 16. I ask you to stand, please, if you're able, in honor of the reading of the Word of God. I'm reading out the English Standard Version. We'll also have the words on the screen for you. And I hope this sounds familiar because this is what we've been singing about this morning. John 1, 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this special season of the year where we get to celebrate the birth of Christ. Lord, for us as your people, I pray as we do so that, Lord, you would Guard us from just going through the routine motions because of the familiarity of the season or the story. I pray that what we're reading that is so true, God, will transform us and change us. Stir my heart and stir the heart of these precious brothers and sisters to rediscover the wonder of what we're celebrating, that Christ has come in human flesh. And I pray from that you fill our lives with a hope that is not based on our circumstances, a hope that is anchored in you and in knowing you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So before we talk about where we find the hope in this passage, let's make sure we understand his one verse about Christmas here and what he's actually telling us in John's account of the Christmas story. Let's go to verse 14. This is an incredible verse in Scripture. This is a weighty verse in Scripture, and this should be awe-inspiring to us. Let's back at the beginning of verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw a minute ago the Word is a title for Jesus, the one who is eternal, who's God Himself, the one who made everything, who spoke the world into being. This one who spoke the world into being, we are now told, has become human. He's become flesh. Now, John did not say he became a man, didn't say he became a person, didn't say he took on a body. He said he took on flesh. Now, what is John trying to communicate? There's a danger for us because when we hear the word flesh, we often go to Paul's writings, right? And he talks about the dangers of the flesh and the works of the flesh. Now, when Paul uses the word flesh, he's usually talking about our sin nature. That's not what John is doing here. John uses the word flesh totally different than Paul does. Super confusing, right? So he's not saying Jesus put on flesh symbol patterns. No, Jesus is God. He's perfect. He is sinless. When John uses the word flesh, he's using a word that denotes a whole person. He's saying Jesus became a person in the fullest sense of the word. When you think of someone being a person and all that comes to mind, Jesus encompassed all that except there was no sin. So Jesus was a person in the fullest sense of the world. He had a mind. He had a body. 
He had a heart. Yes, a heart that beat in him. He also had a heart that felt the emotions that we feel. He ate, he drank, he felt joy, he felt sadness. As a child, he had to learn how to walk and talk and eat and work with his hands, just like you and I have to do. He lived on the same earth that we still live on now, and he experienced firsthand all of life's experiences that you and I experience as well. He became flesh. He became, God himself became a human in the fullest sense of the word, and he willingly chose to do so. He says the word became flesh. Became means he chose to enter a new condition, something that he chose to do himself in his sovereign will for his sovereign purposes. He himself, who did not have to do this, chose to take on humanness in all senses of that word. And when he did that, something else happened here for us. It says, and the word became flesh, and the word Jesus, he dwelt among us. Now, friends, it's easy for us to look at that phrase and just skip right over and keep moving on. But this phrase to the early hearers would make them pause and just their mouth drop in wonder. So I want to reread this phrase a little more literally how they would have heard it. And here's what it literally says in verse 14. And the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. That the word became flesh. That Jesus himself came, that God himself came, and he pitched his tent among us. Now, when you hear that, if you've hung around Mike Presley and I a lot, we think of backpacking, we talk about pitching tents, right? We keep inviting you guys to go with us out in the middle of the woods and carry the big heavy pack and go pitch your tent in the top of a mountain with us and go experience God's creation. That's not what this is talking about here. When the people heard this, they weren't thinking backpacking. They were thinking of the Old Testament and what's called the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. So you could literally translate this, and the word became flesh and tabernacled with us. To the early hearers, that's what they would hear. When they heard that the, the, the God himself pitched his tent among us, which is what that word means, that he tabernacled with us. Now, what in the world does that mean? You had to go back to Exodus in the Old Testament. It was in the Old Testament where God's people had been slaves in Egypt for many, many, many years. And God miraculously delivered them from slavery. And they had a long journey for many, many years to the promised land. And as they journeyed, God gave a special place in the midst of their gatherings, in the midst of their camp. It was called the Tent of Meeting. It was called the Tabernacle. It was a place in the middle of the nation of Israel to be the constant reminder of God's presence. It was to be the place where the people came to worship God. It was to be the place where God met with them. So the tabernacle, the tent that they pitched in the middle of their camp as they traveled, had to be holy. It had to be set apart. So we don't have time to read Exodus 25, 26, and 27 today. But if you want to read it later, go back and reread Exodus 25, 26, 27. Because there's three chapters of instructions of how this tent was to be made and how it's to be pitched, how it's to be put up. There are instructions about the rings and the poles and the material and how they're to be put together in the exact dimensions. God left nothing out and told them exactly how to build this special tent that they were to put up everywhere they went. And the people of God obeyed that with Moses leading them. And they made this place called the tabernacle, this, thing, this tent that they would pitch in the middle of their gathering. And when they finished it, what I want you to see this morning from Exodus is what happens. So Exodus chapter 40 Verse 34 to 38. I want you to see what is Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. So they've just finished doing it. Moses completed the instructions. This is what's happened. The cloud covering the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Verse 35, it goes on. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on him. Now, this is God's presence being seen before them. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Verse 36, it goes on. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel have set out. 
So from the special tent, God would guide his people. There would be a cloud on it, and when the cloud stayed on top of it, they would stay put. When the cloud would lift, they would follow God's direction. They would pack up this tent, they'd pack up all their camps, and they would keep traveling towards the promised land. The cloud would stop, they'd redo their tents, and they would pitch the tent in the middle of the gathering. Once again, they would resume their worship there until God moved them on again there. And then our last one in verse 38, if you can jump up there for us, Alexander. You have one more verse ahead, verse 38. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys. Now, get the image in your mind here. Here's a tent in the middle of their gathering. At night, there's fire on top of it. It's God's presence. During the day, it's a cloud on top of it. The God's presence was visible to the people there. And wherever they moved, this tent was always there. This tabernacle was always pitched right there in the middle of their gathering. That it was a constant reminder to God's people that God was with them. On the easy parts of the journey, the tabernacle, the cloud, and the fire was there to remind them that God was with them. On the hard parts of the journey and the trials and the sufferings, the tabernacle was still there to remind them that God was still with them. That's the image that we have in view here when we come to verse 14. And John says, go back to John 1:14, And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. Now, what is the parallel here that John's trying to help us see? Well, I think there's a lot, but there's three I want to point out here. Ways that John is pulling an image to help us understand who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. Number one, the tabernacle, back to Exodus, was humble in appearance. The tabernacle was humble in appearance. If you think about the people of Israel at the time, they've been living in Egypt. There's pyramids and there is palaces and all this grandeur of the nation of Israel. And as they moved, the grandeur that they're supposed to look at was a tent they put up that was made of animal hides. This was not the palaces of Egypt that they had just seen. Their central place, their central reminder was not something super extraordinary. It was a tent made of animal hides and yet it housed the glory of God. And John is pulling that image to say when people looked at Jesus Christ, he didn't glow. He didn't have, like, despite what our kids' Bible show, he didn't have a halo floating around him. Everyone's like, oh, look, he's different. He looked like a human, a human from the Middle East here. Isaiah tells us in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 2 and 3, in Isaiah 53, verse 2, for he, this is a messianic prophecy. This is talking about the coming of the Messiah before he came. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should despise him. Then in verse 3, he carries on. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Just as the tabernacle wasn't anything extraordinary to see, when you looked at Jesus, he looked like a human. Remember, he took on human flesh in the fullest sense of the world, or the word. That's what we sing when we think about the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. You'll hear it on the radio. You'll sing it. There's a line in there that tries to communicate this truth. It says, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Just as the tabernacle looked pretty ordinary, but inside was the glory of God. Christ looked like an ordinary man, but he had the glory of God. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. The glorious God was in the midst of his people, and he looked just like every other man at the time. So the number one, the tabernacle was humble in appearance. What else is John trying to bring out for us about Jesus tabernacling with us? Number two, the tabernacle was always in the middle of the people. The tabernacle was always in the middle of the people. No matter where God led them, in the easy days or the hard days, the tabernacle was there. It remained in their midst as a constant reminder that God would lead them and God would be with them. 
Jesus came to do the same thing, to tabernacle among his people, to be with his people. That's if you think about it in Christmas songs, one of the names that we sing about and celebrate is he is Emmanuel, God with us. This comes from Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. I think we have it on the screen for you. Matthew 1, 23. There you go. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That Jesus came to be God with us. God desires to be in the midst of his people, not distant, but near. He came to tabernacle to be with us. But number three, I think the parallels that John's trying to bring out for us here. The number three, the tabernacle was to show people the glory of God. The tabernacle was all about showing people the glory of God. Everything about the design of the tabernacle was to communicate truth. That's why we read in Exodus 40 earlier that it was humble in appearance. People would look at it and they would know the glory of God was with them. And that's exactly what John is bringing out for us, that Jesus came to show us the glory of God. If you don't get anything else, make sure you get this about the Christmas story. Jesus came to show us the glory of God. By glory, we mean his brilliance, his beauty, his worth, the fullness of who he is, his nature, his attributes, his sovereign plans, that Jesus came to show us the glory of God, just as a tabernacle did. So we go back to verse 14 of John 1, and John makes this very explicit for us. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his what? We've seen his glory. We've seen the glory of Christ. The glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Friends, John literally saw the glory of Jesus. Now, when some people read this and think, oh, yeah, of course he did. Peter, James, John went up on the mountain of transfiguration. They saw Jesus glorified. They see him in all of his brilliance. But I don't think that's just what John has in mind here. He saw Jesus' glory and Jesus' death and resurrection. He saw what happened when Jesus died. He saw what happened when Jesus rose again. He saw every miracle. He saw all these things that pointed to the glory of God. But I don't want us to miss something here. John saw Jesus' glory through every day of Jesus' humble obedience. When we think of glory, we don't have to just think about the Mount of Transfiguration. We don't have to just think about the resurrection of miracles. Jesus glorified God moment by moment every day in his humble obedience to the Father. The way he prayed, the way he spoke, the way he willingly suffered, the way he loved people, all this he glorified God. The glory of God was on display for John to see in Jesus' day-by-day obedience to the Father's plan. But friends, the glory of God is not just for John, Peter, James, and John to see. It's for us to see as well. Jesus came so we could see the glory of God, and that's you and I today too. God in his grace to us gave us scripture so we could read about Christ. We could read about God's nature, and we could see God's beauty, see God's brilliance, see his greatness, see his glory as we read the scriptures. Jesus came to pitch his tent, to tabernacle among us so we could see the glory of God. That's what the author of Hebrews brings out. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, I want you to see this as well. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Talking about the Old Testament times, now verse 2. But in these last days, this is now the time period from Christ's first coming, his first advent to his return. These last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, that's Christ, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Then in verse 3, we're told, he is the radiance of the glory of God. Here it is, that God has spoken to us by his Son, and Christ is the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power, that Christ came so we could see the glory of God. That's what John is bringing out. Go back to verse 14. And the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us, and we have seen his glory. Now, friends, that's the truth for us. That's John's account of the Christmas story. But the question is, how does that give us hope? 
How's the fact that Christ came to tabernacle with us? How does that give us hope? What difference does that make when you're on a trial and suffering on a hard day? What difference does this make? Three things I want you to see this morning, I believe, give us hope when we think about John's short account of Christmas here. Number one, this truth reminds us that God is knowable. Let's start there, the foundation. This truth reminds us that God is knowable. The reason the tabernacle was there was so the people could know God and see his glory. And the reason Christ came was to rescue us so that we could know God and we could worship him. All this points to God's desire to know a people and be known by a people. One of my favorite authors described it this way. He said this, God came to live in a tent so we could watch him more closely. God wants to be seen and known in his son. He carries on. I found this really helpful. He said, I think what pitching a tent with us implies is that God wants to be on familiar terms with us. He wants to be close. He wants a lot of interaction. If you come into a community and build a huge palace with a wall around it, it says one thing about your desire to be with the people. But if you pitch a tent in my backyard, you'll probably use my bathroom and eat at my table. That is why God became human. He came to pitch a tent in our human backyard so we'd have a lot of dealings with him. Friends, if I pitched a tent in your backyard this week, don't worry, I'm not planning on doing that. I only pitch tents out in the wilderness on backpacking journeys. But if I put a tent in your backyard this week, you would know I was there. I'd be knocking on your door, hey, can I come use your restroom? Knocking on your door, hey, do you have any snacks or food? Like if I had a a tent in your backyard, there'd be no mistaking that I was living in your backyard. I think that's the image that we're supposed to get here in this one, that Christ came to tabernacle with us. He wants us to know him. He wants us to know that he is there. But the reality is for us, friends, when we're not in the middle of a trial, we forget he's pitched his tent right there with us, don't we? God in his grace often has to use the hard times and the trials to drive us to the place to remember that he is right there and wants us to run after him in a real relationship with him. So the question for us is, are we interacting with him? Jesus came to pitch his tent among us, to tabernacle with us. Are we even aware that he is there? And are we pursuing a relationship with the one who put up his tent in our backyard? Friends, God is knowable. He's revealed himself to us. That is the foundation for our hope easy days and the hard days, that he is knowable and desires a relationship with us. Number two builds on that is that number two, God understands our struggles. The fact that Christ tabernacled with us means he understands our struggles. Jesus entered the human experience, as we said earlier, in the fullest sense of the word. He understood hunger. He understood pain. He understood betrayal. He walked through all the trials of life that we walk through. And the more common phrase, he's been there, done that, right? Whatever you're experiencing, Christ himself has experienced. Therefore, he's not distant looking at you, just shaking your head like, oh, I'm sorry they're having a hard day. He empathizes with his children. He understands because he has been there. Hebrews brings us out. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 and 15 tells us this great thing. It says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Now just pause there. The high priest here is talking about Christ, is ascribing him in that role of the high priest. We do not have a high priest unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in how many respects? Every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. Now go into verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. It may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. He understands not just from a distance with some knowledge. He has himself, God himself, entered the fullness of the human experience. He's put on flesh 
in our midst. So he understands every temptation you face, every trial you face, every sadness you face, every struggle you face, every joy you face. He gets it, not just because he made you, but because he himself has put himself in that situation and has walked through it. Therefore, he can invite you to run to his throne of grace to find mercy and grace to help in his time. And he can also invite you, it says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 and 29, in light of what he's done, he can say, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. And then verse 29, he carries on. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So God tabernacled with us because he wants us to know him and know he is there. He invites us to come to him to find rest for our souls, to find the help we need, because he himself understands he's taken on human flesh. And so, friends, the question for us is, are we going to take our struggles to him? So many of us struggle with that. We feel like we have to have it all together, not just in front of others, but in front of God. And so even our prayers, we don't lament our brokenness to God. We don't cry out to him with the struggles we face. He's inviting us to not just know he's there, but to run to him when all of our brokenness and struggles and sin and mess and hardships and say, Lord, you understand help. God understands our struggles. But there's one more hope we see from John's account of Christmas here in verse 14. And that is the third one I want you to see. God will give us everything we need. God will give us everything we need. He's knowable. He understands, and he's ready to give us everything we need on this journey of life. Now, to see this, I want you to see how two of these verses go together. Now, in our text today, verse 15, in most translations, is in parentheses. I don't know if yours is in parentheses, but in the ESV and several other translations, they put verse 15 in parentheses. And they do that for a reason, because it's an inserted idea that John put in here. Verses 14 and 16 go together. When you look at the Greek structure, verse 16 modifies verse 14. John just wanted to interject something and his writing here. So when you read the flow of this, you know, verses 14 and 16 really fit together. We'll do a whole other sermon another day on verse 15. That's not for today. But I want you to hear verses 14 and 16 side by side to catch the thrust of what John is telling us here. So go back to verse 14 this morning. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. And notice this, full of grace and truth. So how much grace and truth? He's full of grace and truth. So get that in your, in your mind now. Now jump to verse 16. And look at how verse 16 begins. And from his what? And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Now catch the connection here that John is making for us. That Jesus himself is full of grace and truth. Verse 14. He is full of grace and truth because he's God. So from his fullness, he has all power. He has all wisdom. He has all knowledge. He has all truth. He has everything because he himself is God. And then in verse 16, we're told that from that fullness of Jesus being God, he is now ready to give us something here. And he is ready to give us grace upon grace. Now, if you've been around Gateway any length of time, you know that's my favorite phrase in Scripture. I love that phrase, grace upon grace. It is to me, it captures so much of the heart of God and his love for his people. It says, we have all received grace upon grace. Now, friends, notice something here. We have already received it. This is not saying that, okay, I know life's hard now, and in the future, God's going to give you the grace you need for it. If you are in Christ, that's the all here, all of us who are in Christ, we have already all received grace upon grace. And if you know Christ in a real personal way, then God has already poured into your life grace upon grace. Now, what is grace? Quite simply, it's God's kindness to us. It's God's blessings to us. It's anything he gives us that we do not deserve. So God's grace is everything we need for life and for godliness. And how much grace does he give us? Well, he gives us grace upon grace. Now, 
More literally, you should translate this. This is grace in place of grace. Some translations actually render it that way. It's grace in place of grace. This idea of one grace, this replaced with another grace, this replaced with another grace, this replaced with another grace, and just on and on. This unending, broken chain of grace after grace after grace after grace after grace. One author I read years ago described it as waves of grace. Like if you like to go to the beach and enjoy sitting down by the ocean where the waves like lap up on you, go sit down by the ocean the tide's coming in, and a wave hits you, you get wet. Well, that's not the only time you get wet, right? That wave goes back out, and what happens? Wave after wave after wave is going to hit you. That's what this Greek phrase is communicating, this grace after grace after grace. The waves of grace, one grace comes to you, and then it's followed by another grace, followed by another grace, followed by another grace. That if you are in Christ, everything you need will be given by God over and over and over and over again. I love how Martin Luther, the great reformer, described it. He said this, This spring, the spring of grace, is inexhaustible. It is full of grace and truth from God. It never loses anything, no matter how much we draw, but remains an infinite fountain of all grace and truth. The more you draw from it, the more abundantly it gives. That sink in from it. There's an unending supply. The more you draw from it, the more abundantly it gives of the water that springs into eternal life. Just as the sun is not darkened by the whole world enjoying its light and can indeed light up ten worlds, so is Christ our Lord an infinite source of all grace. If you've ever been on the planet went out to sunbathe, we can't today, it's cloudy, but on this next sunny day, right? The sun's not going to run out of sunlight because we're all enjoying it. You could put ten more planet Earths around us and the sun wouldn't run out of sunlight giving us sunlight. There's an unending supply of light coming from the sun. That's the image force of grace. And we can pull from God's grace. Every believer in the world can pull from God's grace today. And God's not up in heaven sweating going, I hope no one asks for any more. I'm not sure I have anything left. He is God from his fullness. He will never run out. There's an unending supply of grace. The more we draw, the more that is there waiting for us. That means, friends, the grace we need to focus on God when life is easy is already there for us and keeps on coming. The grace we need when life is hard and full of trials and struggles is already there and it keeps on coming. There's a Scottish theologian named William Barclay and he just, he said it so well in describing grace upon grace or grace after grace. Here's what he said. He said, we need one grace in the days of prosperity and another grace in the days of adversity. We need one grace in the sunlit days of youth. We need another grace when the shadows of age begin to lengthen upon our lives. The church needs one grace in the days of persecution, another grace when the days of acceptance have come. We need one grace when we feel we are on top of things. We need another grace when we are depressed and discouraged and near to despair. We need one grace to bear our own burdens, and we need another grace to bear one another's burdens. We need one grace when we are sure of things, another grace when there is nothing certain left in the world. He says this, The grace of God is never static, but always a dynamic thing. It never fails to meet the situation. The grace of God is never static. It's always a dynamic thing. It never fails to meet the situation. He goes on. One need invades your life, and one grace comes with it. That need passes. Another need assaults you, and with the other need comes another grace. All throughout life, we are constantly receiving grace upon grace upon grace. Friends, that because Christ has come in human flesh, he understands our weakness He's made a way by what he did for us to know him. And now he invites us to draw from his fullness for grace upon grace. On the easy day, he's ready to give the grace we need to delight in him. When the hard days come, he gives us the grace we need to delight in him. When the trials come, he gives us the grace we need to stay focused on him. Friends, he gives grace after grace after grace after grace. So let's bring all that together. Where do we find hope in this life? 
And how does the Christmas story give us hope? Here's the answer I want you to see. This is our main idea to ring it all together this morning. Jesus' unending grace gives us hope in any circumstance. Jesus' unending grace gives us hope in any circumstance. It doesn't matter if it's a good day or a hard day, a trial or an easy day. Whatever we face, sickness, health, whatever we're dealing with, there's grace upon grace or grace after grace to meet our need. Like William Barclay said, for every need that assaults us, grace has already come. It's already there for us and more is to come. Jesus' unending grace from his fullness, from all the fullness of his wisdom and love and power and everything about him being God, he gives us grace after grace to give us hope in the midst of any circumstance. So why that, friends, this Christmas season, I want us to remember that the Christmas story is not just some nice story from history. It's not just a cute manger scene. It's a reality that forever altered history. It's a reality that forever altered how you and I can know God. And I want us to remember this Christmas season that the Word became flesh and pitched His tent and tabernacled among us. And because of that and because of His fullness of grace and truth, we can receive grace after grace. And so the question for us is quite simple. Are we desiring that grace, friends? Are we desiring to know him more? Are we desiring to experience him tabernacling with us? And are we running after him to sustain us through every day that we face? Jesus' unending grace gives us hope in any circumstance. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful that you know us and our weakness and our struggles and our sin. And Lord, you've given us in your grace your word that shows us the source of hope. Or we confess so often we look for hope in the wrong places. We look for hope in our circumstances. We look for hope in our circumstances changing. We look for hope in certain outcomes. We look for hope in certain people. And yet all the while you're standing there with open arms saying, come to me, I will give you rest. And Lord, I pray for myself and reach these precious friends who are part of the Gateway family. Lord, that you would help us this Christmas season to find the hope that can only come from knowing you. God, I pray this season we would not look to the things of this world to give us hope, but we would look to you and we would remember, Lord Jesus, that you have took on flesh and dwelt with us. Lord, I pray this Christmas season that we would desire to deepen our relationship with you, that we desire to go deeper in knowing you, go deeper in walking with you and experiencing that grace upon grace to meet every situation we face. Lord, for the the brother or sister who's struggling today, who's coming into this place really hopeless, because they're facing a trial and a situation that seems like it'll never change. I pray today you flood their heart and soul with your love and with your grace to know that they are not alone and you are holding them and you are so big and so sovereign that you can redeem even the hardest days to bring good to them and glory to you. Well, for the person who's in a place of fairly ease this week, I pray that they wouldn't forget about you. But your grace upon grace was so flood their lives that they would want to run to a deeper relationship with you, not just on the hard days, but the easy ones as well. And you deepen all of our love for you. So Lord, we're grateful that you have made a way for us to know you. We're grateful that you understand our sufferings and our struggles and our temptations. We're grateful that you provide everything we need. And so Lord, this Christmas season, I pray that your unending grace will be our anchor and our hope for any circumstance that we face. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing about the hope we have in Christ this morning? i
what a precious truth we've just proclaimed (laughs) we have a living hope and knowing you Lord help us treasure that truth help us think on that truth help us share that truth throughout this Christmas season Lord all around us are people that you have put in our lives who lack hope right now who do not know the living hope of Christ help us be mindful of them and make you known to them throughout this season and Lord fill our hearts with a joy that can only come from experiencing that living hope and your grace upon grace And we ask it all for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, Gateway family. Have a great Sunday afternoon.